0: We are going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 and verse 46, so I invite you to turn there with me. And once you have found that place in the Gospel of Luke, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke, uh, chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 46 an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You guys can be seated. Well, we are now several weeks into chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, and. Uh, as we look at these short verses, these uh, sometimes strange verses to us, I think it's always important to remind ourselves that the disciples are very much like us. They are humans, they are often confused about Jesus, and they often need much correcting as it turns out uh, in the gospel. And so I think it's uh, probably good for us to reflect just how much the disciples seem to embody the human condition in these verses. Um, we see arrogance, we see pride, we see uh, a lack of ability to understand Jesus' teaching, all jumbled together in uh, four short verses. Uh, and really, that's a mirror uh, to, I think, each and every one of us. It's not all that uncommon for us to think back at our own lives and say, well, we can relate to that or to that. And I think if you just consider the disciples even jockeying for positions of power, um, you might be able to relate to that. And, Uh, If you can't, well, then uh, you might stand alone, I think, in that assessment. So, as we look at these verses, I just want to, let's say, frame on the front end that these are all about humility. These verses are all about how we understand true humility in light of Jesus' teaching and in light of, let's say, who we are in relation to God. The ultimate conclusion of this teaching is that it doesn't really matter how we stand in comparison to one another, Uh, it ultimately matters how we stand as it relates to our Father. And that is, I think, the thrust or the aim of these verses. So if you will look with me at verse 46, I hope that you will find uh, that to be the case, but don't take my word for it. I will try to show you as best I can from the text that that is so. So verse 46, uh, we see that an argument breaks out among the disciples, and the argument goes something like this. Which one of us, which one among us, is the greatest? You'll notice that they are using that term greatest in a comparative sense. That's different than in verse 48, when Jesus concludes the one who is great, he's using it in an ultimate sense. So there's not a greatest as it comes to in the kingdom of God, but a greatness or let's say a lack of greatness and kind of no in between. But the disciples haven't been taught that yet. They're, uh, let's say, trying to understand how they are in relationship to one another. And it probably won't be hard for us to conceive how it is that they come to such a position, right? Uh, at the beginning of chapter 9, they have this amazing ministry where they're preaching the gospel, they're casting out demons, and you know everything is going well. The disciples are coasting along until uh, you know, the last couple of weeks where we've seen that they go up onto the mountaintop and they misunderstand Jesus, and then they are going to fall short in a whole host of ways. Uh, and last week we saw that the ones who weren't up on the mountaintop misunderstanding Jesus are down on the ground failing to cast out demons. So it wouldn't be hard to conceive of a situation where those two different groups of disciples get together, they start talking about their shared experiences, and they start concluding things about one another. Oh, well, you were in the mountaintop, and you didn't quite get what was going on, that must mean that you're less than. And then it wouldn't be hard for me to imagine one of the other ones pointing out, well, you guys were down on the ground with a demon, you weren't able to cast it out. And now all of a sudden we have a very human picture of what it would be like to do ministry. Uh, The disciples are not far removed from us in that sense. This is not, I think, a difficult thing to relate to. If you've ever played sports, you've ever been on a team that was winning and doing well, everything's going great, everyone's getting along, and then as soon as a loss happens or your uh, season starts going south, the very first thing that people seek to do, especially on a team uh, where it's usually many people contributing to the same uh, victory or loss, the first thing people seek to do is not personally take responsibility for losses, but to try to shift the blame of why things went south off of them and onto someone else. Now, I played baseball in college, and it was not all that uncommon for the pitching staff to get together after we've lost a game, driving home on the bus, and trying to figure out which one in the lineup of pitchers that game was the one who was ultimately responsible for the loss. Well, so-and-so gave up a run in inning four, and you know, that was the deciding run. Well, no, 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 we tied the game up later, and then, you know, and so it was really this person's fault. And uh, No, I was, actually it was the third baseman's fault because he dropped the ball over here. and you very quickly start to see how people start to say, well, really, it's not me, it's you, and so I'm actually better off than you are. This is a human kind of thing. If you can't relate to that, you might be able to relate to the example of a group project. If you've ever done that in high school or in college, and it comes to the day that you have a due date, and you start to realize either you or someone on your team was not really carrying their weight as they ought to have, and the project doesn't go as it should have, and now all of a sudden, it's the blame game. Not so much who gets credit, but who gets the blame for how badly things are going now we can understand how the disciples come to this conversation they come uh, really off of two consecutive low points both the three and the rest and now they come together and they're sharing notes as they're traveling along the road with jesus and they get into this discussion which one among us is the greatest now they're not concerned about greatness in an ultimate sense they're concerned about greatness as it relates to each other they're just trying to put themselves in rank and file order among themselves Now, this use of the term greatness or greatest is not all that unusual to Luke's usage. But Luke has already set us up as readers to understand how askew this understanding of greatness is. It's supposed to be a distorted understanding of greatness. But the the setup actually comes several chapters ago, uh, actually at the introduction of Luke's gospel. So I'd like you to turn to two verses with me in Luke chapter one. The first is in verse 15 of Luke chapter one. This is the announcement of the angel concerning the birth of John the Baptist. And he says about John the Baptist, these words, verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. Well, when the angel is relating the greatness of John the Baptist, he doesn't talk about greatness in terms of how John will be according to other people. He talks about John's greatness in relation to the eyes of God. Before the face of God, John the Baptist will be great. That's, let's say, an appropriate view of greatness. You're asking, will people understand who John is? Will uh, he be appreciated? The angel's not really concerned with any of that. The angel's concerned, will God consider this man to be a great man or not? So the angel in comforting Zechariah, says something to the effect of, he will be great before the face of his Lord. That's John the Baptist's greatness. It's not greatness in a relative sense among other humans. It's greatness in an ultimate sense before God. The Second use of the term comes later in that chapter, verse 32. This is referring to the birth of Jesus, the announcement to Mary. And Mary is told that her son will be called great. And it doesn't qualify it. It doesn't say great before God. It doesn't say great among peers. It just says he will be called great. It's using it in an ultimate sense. Jesus is the ultimate good, the ultimate greatness that there is. So Luke's already prepared us to... Cast away the relative sense of greatness and uh, absorb a better biblical understanding of what it means to be great. Namely, greatness is as it relates to the eyes of God. True greatness is not what other people say about you or the comparative greatness that the world is trying to uh, understand. True greatness is greatness as it relates to God's perception of you. It's actually the whole question that the rest of the Gospel of Luke is uh, kind of seeking to argue. Is that the ultimate matter of purity and holiness and sinlessness this is to be found in Jesus because he resists all kinds of temptation he actually goes to the cross on our behalf he is truly great and so you want to be found in him you want to be found as his disciple you don't want to try to go along your own way to find your own greatness and your own righteousness that's what the Pharisees do they're set up as a negative example in the gospel there is no greatness outside of Jesus Christ but One thing we know about the disciples is they're humans. And so it shouldn't surprise us that even though they've confessed Jesus as Lord, they've confessed him as Christ, that they still don't quite understand the full depth or the full expansion of all that they've declared about him. Now they need a lot of corrective instruction, as it were, uh, in their understanding of one another and their relationship to Jesus. And I think that's also going to be a comfort to us because think about when you first profess Jesus as Lord maybe you're not even so sure what to do with Jesus. Jesus doesn't demand that you know every theological point, every theologically correct answer, at the moment when you begin to follow him. That's not the point. The point is you're willing and able to learn. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so we shouldn't be shocked when the disciples fall short of our expectations in some way. They haven't overnight in their confession of Jesus as Lord gone from fishermen to theologians. They still have years to go and much hardship and much sin to endure before they're going to be refined into the kind of mature people who can lead the early church. We shouldn't expect unrealistic things of them, It's part of the sanctification process. But we see, at least in uh, Jesus's uh, rebuke of the disciples, the danger of that comparative kind of greatness. If you look with me back in the text, uh, in verse 46 of chapter 9, you'll see that uh, when they are making Jesus aware of their contention. They're asking the question, which one among them is the greatest? And you'll notice what the text says. It has a a negative response from Jesus. It says these words, but Jesus, knowing the thoughts of their heart, knowing the reasoning of their heart, took a child and placed them next to him. So Jesus doesn't answer their question on its face. He sees through the question to the problem at the root of it, which is their lack of understanding about true greatness. And he's going to teach them an object lesson. Now, before we go on to Jesus' object lesson, it might be worth asking the question, why is it such a problem that the disciples think about greatness in these relative kind of terms? Greatness among each other, greatness among themselves. The problem is that that's an unbiblical view of the human condition. Paul rebukes uh, the early church saying something to the effect of humanity is lost because it compares itself by itself and thus falls short of the standard of God. Humanity compares itself by itself, thus it is lost. We know that the world is a poor judge of true greatness. It's kind of the point, right? The world sees Jesus' greatness and misses it entirely and crucifies him. The world is a poor judge of greatness. We know this to be true. Hebrews chapter 11, that anchor passage in the book of Hebrews, concludes at the end of the testimony of the hall of faith with the words, these were men of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of their faith. The world was not worthy of their greatness. Jesus in Luke chapter 7 refers to John the Baptist by saying that among all of the history of the prophets, there has been no one born among man greater than John the Baptist but the one who is least in my kingdom is greater than he. Jesus is making an argument that as great as John the Baptist is, even in his prophetic ministry, there's still a yet greater place to have, which is a a righteousness before God in the kingdom of God, not standing on your own. Every child in the kingdom of God is greater than even John the Baptist in his ministry because they get to see and experience and be part of that kingdom ministry. So Jesus is going to correct the disciples' misunderstanding of greatness, essentially by putting a child in their midst, and then saying, whoever is like this child or receives this child, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Now that doesn't seem, let's say, on the face to answer the question. I don't know if you ever think about why Jesus would respond in this kind of a way. He says, he's not answering the question of who is greatest. He's he's totally deviating, it seems like. He says, whoever receives a child in my name, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For whoever is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Now, the argument from Jesus is essentially to say, let's scrap the whole previous discussion. You've totally misunderstood greatness. Let me correct your understanding of greatness. It's not a matter of relative comparison between you and the other Christians around you. Greatness is a matter of ultimate reality between faith in God. He says it in these words, the one who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, if you were to ask the question, what's he saying there? The least among you all is great. He's talking about being least, being poor, being empty, being uh, humble. This is the mark of true greatness, right? He's already preached in Luke's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. The one who is least, the one who is humble, the one who empties himself and does not boast in his own greatness, this is the one who is in fact great. They've transcended the poor understanding of the world's greatness and they've, they've understood greatness in an ultimate sense, greatness in the eyes of God. And notice uh, your translation will distinguish between the first uses of the term in verse 46, greatest, or relative comparative sense, and in verse 48 at the end, great. It's just great. If you are great, that is an ultimate declaration of who you are, not a relative comparison among other people. That's the point Jesus is saying. The child is representing a bunch of things. The child is not uh, representing to us, for example, that we have permission to have poor and uh, very young, immature faith. That's not the point. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul actually says, don't be like a child. You should be wise and mature and discerning. But the child is an example for us of what we would call simple faith. And what we mean by that is that the child is a babe in the faith, the child is young in the faith, and the child exemplifies the standard of faith that is required to be in the kingdom of God, namely a believing, trusting, abiding faith that is not jockeying for positions of power. That's what the child is representing. It is teaching us how to view ourselves in the faith as opposed to how we view others in the faith. And Jesus makes the argument that if you receive this child in my name, then you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive him who sent me. So the child in this metaphor, this uh, illustration for Jesus is an example of a brother. Receiving someone who is in Christ, you receive them in my name, which means you receive them as my child. If you receive them as my child, well, then you're receiving not just them, but me. And if you're receiving me, you're not just receiving me and them, you're receiving the one who sent me. Now, you might be saying that's a rather strange kind of comparison, except that the testimony throughout all the rest of the New Testament is something to the same effect. You cannot simultaneously claim to love God and love God's church and hate God's church. You cannot claim that you love God and reject those who are also coming in the name of God. You cannot... Reject the child who comes in Jesus name and then claim to also simultaneously love Jesus because accepting the child receiving the child in his name or receiving a young Christian in in that testimony of faith on that face value that is emblematic of receiving Jesus and receiving the father. I think we get this wrong today because we have such a individualistic view of the Christian faith, the Christian walk, our relationship with God. Which is not necessarily a bad thing it's in part true that it's really only us and our relationship with god that matters our personal relationship but it is a, a poor understanding of what it means to be part of god's people to say that we think we can have a relationship with god apart from his body or his bride john uh, makes an extended argument in his letter to uh to the early church and so i'd like to follow just. a Bits and pieces of that argument, if you will. It's in First John. We'll start in chapter 2. And I'll be looking at verse 9 of chapter 2. We're just going to pick around in First John. And again, chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, the one saying he is in the light and simultaneously hating his brother is in the darkness until now. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and he waddles around in the darkness and he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John's argument, at least at this first pass, is you cannot simultaneously say you are walking in the light, which is to walk with God because God is light, chapter one, and simultaneously hate your brother. Those are two things that don't make sense. Your brother is the one who is in the faith with you, a Christian, someone who claims the name of God. You cannot claim to be in the light, be walking with God, and hate your brother at the same time. Those are two things that do not go together. They're not compatible. Scripture doesn't have a category for it. If you hate your brother, you are in the darkness until now. If you love your brother, you remain in light. But if you remain hating your brother, essentially you're so blinded that you don't even know which way to go. I think this is a strong rebuke from John to many of us who might be tempted to say something like, we love God, we hate his church. I love Jesus, I just don't like his people so much. To love God is to love his people. It's the exhortation towards holiness that the New Testament has for us. But John's not done with his argument. Go with me to chapter 3 and verse 15 of 1 John. He says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And he does not have eternal life the one who knows love, this one has God. And lastly, chapter 4 and verse 20. That is, I think, the strongest rebuke that John has for us in this argument. Whoever says that he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. For you cannot hate your brother and love God. The one who hates his brother does not have the love of God and is not able to love God. John's ultimate conclusion of his argument is there in verse 20 of chapter 4. If you look at your brother, someone who is in Christ with you, and you hate him, it is not possible for you to say simultaneously you love God and you hate your brother, Because hating your brother is emblematic of the fact that you do not have the ability to love God. How can anyone say that he loves God whom he has not seen and yet hate his brother whom he has seen? It's not possible. Scripture has a a category for this, and it's an expansion of the argument from Jesus here in Luke's Gospel. The basic point is to receive a child in the name of Jesus, to receive someone else in the faith, is a testimony or a witness or a stamp of approval that you indeed understand what it is to receive Christ. There's no category in the New Testament for a Christian who does their faith journey on an individual basis. And Jesus is uh, exhorting his disciples strongly here because remember, they were just trying to create distinctions among themselves in terms of relative greatness. So he teaches them that it's really a matter of objective greatness before the Father, And if anyone is objectively considered great before God, you have no right to cast them out and reject them. You have no right to make distinctions among yourselves between you and them. This is emblematic, let's say, of a young Christian who you are to receive, even if they're difficult to get along with. Now, the New Testament is not saying, and Jesus is not saying, that there's never a time where you cannot make distinctions between yourself and someone else. There's plenty of times where Paul actually exhorts the church to make distinctions between them and those who are not walking in truth. There's plenty of times where the New Testament exhorts uh, the church to actually make a distinction where they were unwilling to make a distinction previously. So this is not referring to necessary distinctions that need to be made. It's referring to the unnecessary human-made distinctions in terms of relative greatness. Now, where do we see this? Well, we see it certainly in our culture today, but it's not... Uh, peculiar to our our culture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has to tell the whole church in Corinth, stop saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter, or I'm of Christ. Is the body of Christ divided? Don't make relative claims to greatness and identify yourselves in these relative kinds of camps. Don't identify yourselves uh, by means of someone else's greatness. And don't identify yourselves as a means of your own greatness. Now, we might not be tempted to, let's say, jockey for our own greatness, but I think it is certainly true in our culture that we have this kind of celebrity Christianity where we identify someone who we like or someone whose teaching we enjoy. And we try to identify ourselves not primarily as a disciple of Jesus, but a disciple of this person. And that can create its own kind of relative greatness distinction in the body where we look at the person who we follow and we look at the person who they claim to like and to follow and we make a distinction in our mind between them being, let's say, a weak believer or an immature believer or an undiscerning believer. And Jesus is saying something to the effect of don't do that kind of thing in the body. That is to make greatness relative and to ultimately measure yourself as being better than another believer, which is not a category that you should have as a Christian. That's again not saying that we shouldn't be discerning. Paul tells the church all the time to be discerning about false teachers, but I fear that uh, our tendency is more often than not, not to be discerning about true false teaching, but to be uh, discerning about levels of, let's say, greatness in the body. We wouldn't call someone a heretic, but we would say they're less mature because they believe this or follow that person. That's something that I think we can be be strongly rebuked by in this text. Because it's not as though verse 46 comes without precedent, right? There's a whole group of disciples that were just unable to cast out a demon. So you can imagine the human temptation to say, well, that must mean they were weaker in faith. And there's three disciples that were able to go up on the mountain with Jesus. And you can imagine that that would drive in their hearts maybe a sense of superiority and greatness. And Jesus is strongly telling them, don't be tempted towards that end. To receive the child, receive even the weak one in faith, is to receive me and to receive the Father who sent me. So the argument goes to the effect of, don't create unnecessary distinctions in the body, and don't create relative degrees of greatness in the body either, because to do so is to make something relative that ought not to be relative. Either you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. Either you have faith or you don't. And as it relates to having faith and having, let's say, strong or weak faith, we're called to live, with one another, even in those weaknesses. Paul has a whole letter to the Corinthian church at the end of the letter where he says, there's the weak brother and the strong brother, and the strong brother needs to bear with the weak brother, even though it's frustrating and difficult, and they shouldn't make distinctions among themselves or maybe feel superior to one another as a result. You're to bear with one another. Now, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I certainly can as a Christian where I'm always tempted in my heart to judge the condition of someone's faith or their walk with the Lord in terms of relative degrees of whether I feel like I'm doing better or worse than they are. And I think the the on-the-ground application of this is don't do things like that. Even if you're not going to the ultimate extreme and saying they're not a Christian, it's just as sinful, just as dangerous to your soul to make a relative comparison between you and someone else. The kind of comparison that says, you know, I don't listen to that person or I'm not subject to that doctrine, so I'm better off. Or, well, I've prayed more than they have in the last week, and so I'm better off. Or uh, I understand a doctrine or a theology that they might have a hard time grasping, and so I am greater than they are. The church is not to be a divided body in that kind of sense. It's an unnecessary kind of distinction. And we can learn from the disciples and their humanity because they find themselves doing this kind of thing all the time. This is not the last time Jesus will have to teach them this very same lesson, not even in Luke's gospel. Just wait till chapter 11 and 12. You'll see this whole round all over again. So what then are we to say about distinctions? Are they necessary ever? And and what do they look like? Well, verse 49 kind of steps in here. And John, the disciple, is reflecting on this teaching of Jesus about receiving people in his name. And he's thinking back, possibly to a previous thing that has happened at some point with the disciples. Maybe it's while Jesus was on the mountain. Maybe it was while they were out on their ministry journey. And he's thinking, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. So he's going to ask Jesus, do you think we should have done this? So in verse 49, he asked the question, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow you with us. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, there's all kinds of ways to go astray with this emphasis in Jesus' teaching. And we want to be careful as we try to apply this. But I think at the core, one of the things we can say is verse 49 is certainly telling us that John is thinking hard about the full extent of the teaching of Jesus. If Jesus is saying, receive anyone who confesses me, anyone who's in my name, then John is saying, well, maybe we were sinful or wrong when we did this thing previously. Forbidding someone from casting out demons because that person wasn't within the inner 12 that Jesus had ordained. They literally say, it's someone who did not follow you with us or did not follow you alongside us. So you can say that they, let's say, at least had a reason or it was a reasonable thing for them to do to ask this person to stop casting out demons, except for the fact that Jesus seems to tell them, don't do something like that because the one who is not against you is for you. Now it's also, let's say, we ought to be careful about this, Jesus is also not saying you've got to go join in ministry with that person and do ministry alongside them. That's not the thrust of the text. The thrust is if you find someone who's also laboring in the gospel, you don't want to impede them, rebuke them, stop them, because they could be doing a lot of good work, even if they're not from your camp. Now, Paul applies this in his letter to the Philippian church when he says uh, in chapter 1, 15, 16, 17, and 18, There's a whole lot of people who preach Christ out of selfish envy and vain conceit, but what? Only that Christ is proclaimed and preached, and I rejoice in that. Paul is not going to go do ministry with those people when he gets out of prison. He's probably not super jazzed up to go, let's say, preach on the same campaign with them or go to the same church service as them, but Paul is certainly not speaking out against them in their theology, why? because they're preaching the gospel, they're advancing Christ. And so he's not going to cause an unnecessary distinction where there need not be one. And here the disciples get the same kind of lesson, except they're learning it on the negative end, where they rebuke someone who was preaching Christ faithfully and who was casting out demons, which is emblematic of the fact that God's power was in that person to do that. And Jesus is saying, essentially, don't rebuke that kind of a person. Now, if you think back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and why Jesus might be saying this. Remember, the kind of general thrust of that text is you're going to have all kinds of enemies, all kinds of people who are out against you. And so here in verse 50, Jesus is essentially saying, you're going to have so many enemies, why bother making more? Why would you bother going out and trying to fight the ministry of other people, even if they're not in your camp or with your tribe? Why would you go out and fight against them if they're preaching the true gospel? Now, this is not to be unnecessarily applied, where we would say that Paul was unjust when he creates a distinction between himself and the Judaizers. We know in the church that there are necessary distinctions when doctrine is at play and there's false doctrine at work. Paul exhorts Timothy to hold fast to sound teaching in his letter to him. So we know that there is a case where someone should have necessary distinctions. But the point Jesus is making here is if someone is preaching the true gospel insofar as they're doing that, don't stop them. Don't forbid them from doing that kind of thing. Don't speak out against them. Now, if you think about this, in Western Christianity, especially with the abundance of media and the abundance of ability that we have to send and receive sermons or teachings or buy books from all kinds of teachers, it's probably not uncommon for you in your regular walk with other Christians or even within your church or even within your friend group to see teachings that on secondary issues might make you uncomfortable or frustrated. And it's probably not too far uh too too big of an assumption for me to say that you've probably at some point in time tried to rebuke or warn or caution someone against hearing and receiving the teaching from someone else because they have let's say some questionable doctrine on something or other now we need to have a category as christians where we can say we want to engage in conversation about let's say these other disputes or questions that we might have but we also need to have a category where we can rejoice in the ministry of other people even if they disagree on secondary or even tertiary things with us, so long as they have the gospel right and people are coming to faith. It's very common, I think, for us to rejoice when the gospel is growing our own tribe or when uh, people in our own churches or people in our own circles are coming to faith from teaching that we're comfortable with and we love. And a lot harder sometimes for us to rejoice when people are coming to faith in Christ from teaching that we might consider more questionable or a little bit out of bounds, or a little bit unhinged. And Jesus has a category where he can can say, uh, don't, let's say, unnecessarily rebuke someone who's preaching the gospel. Don't unnecessarily cause divisions where someone has my name and they're proclaiming it and they're advancing it. We need to have a category for that. And so without caveating that too much, I think that we need to let that message sink in because I think As Christians, we can often struggle with a critical spirit, sometimes motivated by a good heart, sometimes uh, motivated by right intentions where we want to guard people, we want to shepherd people. We want them to understand right and sound teaching. That's all good, but you don't want to press that to the point where uh, someone shares with you a resource that they found encouraging or a book that they really enjoyed and helped them along. And by the time you're done reviewing that book to the person or that teaching to the person, they feel as though they're less than or lower than or totally despised by you. We have to have a category where people who we don't agree with on all things can preach and teach and proclaim the true gospel faithfully. Now again, Jesus is not saying to them, you got to go grab that guy and you got to go do ministry with him. That's not what he's saying. Paul, in his uh, missionary journey in Acts, has to separate with Barnabas because they can't quite figure out what to do with John Mark. But Paul doesn't forbid Barnabas and John Mark from going and preaching the gospel. But he doesn't have to go join them because his conscience is seared. He's a little bit frustrated about that. So we have to have a category where other people can do gospel work who might not be aligned with us in every single way and where we can rejoice in the success of their gospel work, even if we have some reservations about other things that they might be doing. The disciples have, let's say, good reasons to have reservations about this exorcist because they don't know him he's not from their group He seems to be preaching Christ they're not really sure what to do with that but Jesus is saying don't forbid that kind of thing now, if you think about that Philippians text that I pointed out you can think about all the reasons Paul might have to warn the Philippian church against the people who are preaching falsely about him or who are dragging his name through the mud And you think about all the good right motivations why Paul might warn those people Because maybe it causes the Philippian church to doubt Paul's teaching or to doubt Paul and the gospel that he brought. But Paul doesn't want to unnecessarily drive division, so he says something to the effect of, I rejoice though Christ is proclaimed even though they drag my name through the mud. I don't really care as long as Christ is preached. That's quite a humility. That's quite a tolerance. If you think about these two sections and how they fit together, it's not all that hard to think about the greatness and the jockeying for power that happens in the first half to be very similar to the distinctions that are trying to be made in the second half. In the first half, you have the disciples trying to make distinctions among themselves. Let's say people in the same church thinking, I'm better than you because I have this position or that position, and you don't. And then in the second half, it's more like, well, there's people in this church and there's people in that church down the street who teaches, Ah, they're part of a different denomination, they're part of a different group, We don't agree with them on some things and they're preaching the gospel and look at their church is growing and -and so-and-so is now going to that church over there. And Jesus is saying, "Don't, don't drive unnecessary distinctions where you don't need to drive distinctions. The whole world is going to be out to get you. The whole world is going to hate you. The whole world is going to be vying for your downfall. So if Christ is being preached and the gospel is being proclaimed and the spirit is abiding and working and providing growth and fruit, don't go and try to grab people away from there and forbid their ministry That's the point because it's an issue of pride it's an issue of humility in the first half it's pride in between the disciples and one another or you can think about in between people in the same church and the same faith community trying to drive pride and humility and position themselves relative to one another but in verse 49 and 50 it would be essentially two different faith communities pitting themselves against one another and trying to decide who is greater than who or who has the true gospel and who doesn't. And so I think we need to really be careful about this because on the one hand, in our modern culture, it's very easy to gain access to false teaching and very questionable teaching very easily. And so we need to be discerning about that kind of thing and willing to speak up when we see true false teaching going on, very dangerous doctrine and things that distort the gospel. But that can very quickly run rampant and, very, and be very dangerous to our souls, where we find ourselves being so narrow on all kinds of issues, so tight with our theology, so careful, that we no longer have a category for anyone who disagrees with us in any way. It's either their true teacher or they're a heretic, and there's no in between. That's a very dangerous position to find yourself in. And that doesn't happen overnight. When you start out your faith journey, you're learning things about Christ. You're encouraged by everything. You might reflect on books that you've read in the past or uh, preachers you used to listen to or a church you might have uh, used to attend. And you might have said, you know, I provided, I got a lot of growth during that season of my life. I learned a lot. But, you know, where I'm at now, I probably wouldn't find much encouragement from that person. And that's okay to, let's say, have that recognition of personal growth. But it's, let's say, not okay to then turn around and think that you're superior to other Christians because you've arrived or you've ascended or you've somehow uh, matured in that kind of a way. And it's very, very dangerous because it's a slippery slope to start uh, providing unnecessary distinctions where they don't belong. So here would be, let's say, the encouragement or the on the ground point. If someone has the true gospel, they have the gospel right, that is a church and a ministry and an organization you wanna pray for, you want to encourage, and you want to consider a brother in arms. That does not mean that in every way you need to link arms with that kind of a group or with that kind of a person, but it also doesn't mean that you should drive distinctions between you and them. You should be able to have a category for someone you can link arms with and pray for and love on and consider a brother without having to wholesale agree with and sign off on everything they profess and agree with. We have to have a category for that. The New Testament church has categories for that kind of a thing. This doesn't mean don't be discerning, because like I said, you have to get the gospel right. That's the initial entry point into this. Now you might be saying, okay, well how can we get the gospel right or wrong? The New Testament speaks in the gospel of all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of emphases that are driven home by the gospel. But if you were to boil the gospel down, if you were to ask Paul, what is the essential gospel? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you the thing that I received, and I relayed it over to you. And this is, let's say, the bare bones essentials of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was raised again on Thursday in newness of life, and he now, let's say, turns around and offers that to you. That is the good news of the gospel. It is what we would call the substitution of Christ in our place. That, the, that first of all, you have to understand you're a sinner, right? We read that in Mark chapter 1, that Mark, uh, or sorry, John the Baptist has to preach a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the gospel first starts off with bad news. You're a sinner in desperate need of salvation. Good news, Jesus came and provided the necessary atonement in your place, died in your stead, offers that to you. Thirdly, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And how do I know that I have believed? How do I know that I have salvation? Well, you would bear fruit in keeping with the name of Jesus. Not only do you confess him as Savior, but you would confess him as Lord. He is the Lord of your life. Which means that one of the ways you can say someone truly has faith is if they're bearing fruit in their life. Not that they bear fruit in order to obtain salvation. They bear fruit as a mark of maturity in their growth of salvation. What would be distortions off of that gospel that I just said? There are several that you might think of. Maybe there's a particular community that you've been a part of in the past that had something wrong on this. Or uh, had a particular distortion that they uh, preferred. There's all kinds of distortions off the gospel. First distortion would be that Jesus, whatever else he did, didn't die in your place for sin because you're not all that bad as it turns out. That would be a very bad distortion of the gospel, that people aren't so sinful, they're not so bad. Jesus died to show you how much God loves you, but didn't die in your stead as a sinner. No, no, no. The gospel says that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. He was the wrath bearer on our behalf. So to say that there is no wrath that God has towards sin, that God doesn't have any enmity between you and him before you were in Christ, that would be a distortion of the gospel. It it loses tenet one, which is why Jesus came, lived the perfect life, and died the perfect death. So it misses. Another distortion would be to say that Jesus did die in order to purchase for us the possibility of salvation, but now it's up to us to put our faith in him and work for him so that we might curry favor and righteousness before God. To say that we have to have faith in Jesus and we need to work for good news, for sanctification, so that we might be found as righteous before God. It's both our profession of faith and us ourselves meriting faith before God. That would be a distortion. We have to be careful, but it is a distinction that we need to make. Other uh, distortions of the gospel. There's so many to name, and you know, 2,000 years of church history would, uh, would beg all kinds of different things that peak and, and ebb and flow in the history of the church. One that I think is particularly dangerous today is similar to the first, but let's say a little bit different. It's the the gospel of what I would call the progressive church, which says something to the effect of, not only does God have no wrath for sin, not only are you not so bad of a sinner, but what Jesus was really doing on earth was dying an unnecessary death, and he's not even the means by which we obtain favor with God, because you can believe in whatever you want to, and God will find favor with you. So it it loses the sin component of the gospel, it loses the exclusivity of Christ alone in the gospel, and it loses any bearing on the need for holiness and the need for growth in Christ. Because it says there's no sin to begin with, there's no really ideal standard, and therefore Jesus is simply one means to God, but not the only means to God, not an ultimate means to God, and certainly not a final atonement for sin. And that misses on almost every single front that you can imagine when it comes to the gospel. It loses every one of those core components. What are things that are not central to the gospel, but things that we might have major divisions over with other Christians? Well, we could have major divisions over things like how it is that we are saved. Are we saved first by putting our faith in Jesus and that saves us? Or are we saved because Jesus renews our hearts and then causes that faith to be produced in us? Those are two different views of how salvation works. Both of them would be, let's say, necessary for us individually to figure out, but not things that would have to drive a separation between Christians. We might have uh, differences over what it looks like when Christ returns. Does he return tomorrow? Is he imminent like that? Uh, Is he going to return, reign for a thousand years? Is he going to return, rapture his bride to himself? What does the return look like? These are things that we can have opinions on, but we don't need to break fellowship over and say that they're preaching a false gospel if they don't have this kind of thing. What about uh, the spiritual gifts, the advancement of them? Do they still persist for today? Prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing. Oh, we can have a category or an opinion of what that looks like. Do they still play out today or not? What we cannot do is say that this is the gospel and therefore these are heretics if they advocate anything else. Those would be what we would call unnecessary distinctions. Now, if you're wondering why I'd say all those things are unnecessary, those are pretty big deals. You have to consider the fact that the gospel is so easy to get wrong. And if you don't think it's easy to get wrong, you haven't talked with enough people outside of the church that have the gospel wrong. There are so many ways to get the gospel wrong. When you understand how how sensitive the gospel is, how careful you need to be wielding it, you have to understand that when a church or a community of Christians has the gospel right, that is something to be celebrated. Even if there's all kinds of other things that we would consider weird or strange or uncomfortable for us. If the gospel is there, it is worth rejoicing and celebrating over. If the gospel is not there, it is something we need to stand on. It is something we need to create a distinction in. Because to have the gospel wrong is to have all kinds of things off. And so we need to be able to divide where we need to divide. And we also need to be able to hold arms and link arms where we need to. And we need to do that, let's say, by having thick skin, by being able to understand that there are some Christians who might not get along with us in every way. And we need to also say there are some people who think that they're Christians and certainly are not because they have the gospel wrong. This passage teaches us, at least on the first half, that we need to have open arms for probably a bigger bucket than we would maybe be comfortable with. And at the same time, the rest of the New Testament's testimony is, but we also have to be able to say no when someone is outside of the faith. Both things are true in the word of God. Now, if you're thinking yourself, that sounds like a whole lot of work, a whole lot of discernment, a whole lot of frustrating laborious stuff the one thing we need to remember is if we're thinking about keeping our arms open having a big category for what it looks like to be a Christian we need to remember that that is very generous and kind and probably inclusive of ourselves when you first come to faith in Christ you don't have everything perfect you don't quite have everything refined and figured out and dusted off and polished that's okay because it's a pretty big bucket for what it looks like to be a Christian. You can have all kinds of let's say strange beliefs about God and still be relatively within the camp of orthodoxy. And as you grow in faith, you wanna obviously refine those things. It's not permission to be immature for the rest of your life. But you don't need to say, oh, you know, before this I wasn't a Christian and now that I have this doctrinal understanding, now I'm a Christian. That's not really how scripture views it, right? The disciples don't quite have even the Christ right at this point in, in the Gospel of Luke. And yet they seem to be following authentically from their heart Jesus as he's professing himself to be, even though they don't quite have all the good categories for it. We have to understand the other thing. Uh, If the world is truly hostile to us as believers and we need to be willing to die on certain hills, we can't let that kind of negative pessimistic mindset get so deep inside of us that we have to turn around and do some friendly fire with other Christians. That is a real danger where we would be, be so callous, be so hard, be so narrow-minded <laughs> on what it looks like to be a Christian, that we all of start, start only shooting inside the church at one another and creating all kinds of chaos and unnecessary division. That is a great way to tell the rest of the world that the church doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know what it believes, and is so caught up in these secondary and tertiary matters that they don't even really care about the gospel anymore. They're willing to divide over almost anything. So when you preach Christ and when you go forth with the gospel, you need to be able to simultaneously hold on to these core essentials and have a big arm or a big category for people who won't fit neatly in whatever bucket that you find yourself in. And all of that needs to happen. Why? Because our witness to the world is at stake. John chapter 17, you don't need to turn there. I would encourage you to read it later this week. Jesus is praying for his bride, for the church. And he says, Father, I pray that they would be united as we are united. They would be one as we are one, so that the world would know that you have sent me. The unity of the church, our ability to link arms with brothers, is linked to our ability to witness to the world about the authenticity of Christ and his sacrifice in the world. If we are not able to be unified over things that we really need to be unified over, it actually hurts our witness to the world. Jesus laments the possibility of the church being divided. And I think today, we need to have a similar kind of lament. If you look at the state of the church in the West, there's all kinds of good reasons to have division. All kinds of people live with the gospel wrong. But I think far more often, we see it that the church is unnecessarily divisive over things. Where you have discernment ministries, people who have YouTube channels and podcasts and all kinds of things, where all they seem to talk about is slandering other Christians... And sometimes over things that are really tertiary and secondary issues. That doesn't mean we should never talk about those things and we should always keep them hush-hush. That doesn't mean that. But if you think about the kind of witness that you're going to put out into the world, do you want to send to the world the witness that the church is divided and doesn't have any idea which way is up? And that really the the faithful Christians are only one small group of people? Or do you want to send to the world that really the gospel is easy to understand from, from scripture? By and large, faithful Christians get this thing right. There's a big camp of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian, but that doesn't mean there aren't still other things that we have up for debate. When you go to witness to your neighbor, to, uh, to friends, one of the first lines of accusation they might have is how do I know that you who, propone, who propose to be uh, ambassador of Christ have it right and the other Christian down the street doesn't have it right? You guys seem to disagree on all kinds of things. Well, we need to have a big arm to say that actually that person has the same gospel or they're wrong for this reason. We need to be able to make those kinds of distinctions as we witness, because our witness really is at stake as believers. And if you're looking at the church as as a non-believer, and you're saying, well, how is it the case that the church is so confused about all these kinds of things that seem to be very, very different? How is it that the church is able to disagree on uh, the order of salvation or things in the end times? How is it that the church is not able to figure this stuff out and get any kind of uniformity Well, I would encourage you to first look at, let's say, the things that every Bible-believing Christian does agree on. And you will find far more things that Bible-believing Christians agree on than things that they disagree on. Humans are sinful. God is holy. Jesus is our substitute. These are kinds of things that all Orthodox believers wholesale agree on across the board. And there's a whole bucket of believers that agree with that. Now, yes, there are all kinds of things that we might disagree on, but they're not what we would call essentials. And if you want to reject Christ or reject the witness of the church because of a secondary or a tertiary disagreement with Christians that you saw get particularly messy or that you think is particularly interesting, you should talk to a Christian about why it is that they disagree over those kinds of things first. I would encourage you to do that if that's a doubt that you have because my sense is that Christians would be able to provide a good testimony as to what we first agree over with other believers before we get to the divisive topics. When you think that maybe this is not super important, or uh, that this doesn't actually matter all that much. The world is so divided. The world is so broken. The world is so confused about all kinds of things that the temptation of the world is to look at the church and say, and you are just as confused as we are about all this stuff, so we know that you don't have it figured out. And I fear that the church is setting itself up for a valid accusation in that lane if we are too divisive. What we wanna instead do is consider our witness to the world, consider the kind of testimony we bring to non-believers, and we wanna be able to bring a testimony that is unified, that is cohesive, that fits together well, and that is inclusive of many Christians, and we wanna have that be the primary tip of the spear, not to debate all kinds of secondary and tertiary things. It is fine to debate that with other believers. I would encourage you probably not to do that in public or over social media, or things like that. Because it's not just you and the other Christians that are looking in, it's the world that looks in on that. And sees the division, sees the frustration, sees the anger and the visceral response that Christians have towards one another, and concludes, I think rightly so, that these people don't really have any kind of love or any kind of uniformity. They look like they hate one another. And so we need to be careful about that because our witness to the world does really matter quite a bit. I think that's what Jesus is, let's say, teaching his disciples here. Almost in a shocking sense, right? Don't create divisions among yourselves. And even if someone comes who's outside of the camp who isn't even my disciple but is teaching in my name, accept that person as well. That is a expansive view of what it means to proclaim Christ. And I think it's one that challenges us and I think one that we should ponder as we go throughout this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you particularly for Difficult teachings from your word that might confuse us, that might leave us uh, with lots of questions and maybe few answers. Lord, as we think about all the truth in this text, about having open arms and loving other people who come in your name and accepting them and receiving them. Lord, would you give us minds to see what are things that we need to die over and hills that we need to die on? And where is it possible that we have been too narrow and too exclusive in our proclamation of you? Would you give us a sensitivity towards that? But also, Lord, would you give us the ability to say, I was wrong on that? Or to be more inclusive when it comes to those who proclaim your name? And at the same time, would you make us bold when it comes to those who get the gospel wrong? Lest we for a desire of tolerance or for a desire of inclusivity, dilute and pervert the gospel that you have so preciously delivered to us. Would you give us grace in all things as we try to figure out this walk? We know that you are gracious to your disciples, which you model for us so well. And Lord, we pray that you would be that way to us by your spirit and by your abiding presence as you rule and reign over your church. We pray this in your name. Amen.